Thanks, Pastor Greg. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to South Bay Community Church. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, I can't believe that Christmas is next weekend. Are you guys excited? Anybody excited? No, kind of. All right. Okay. Well, I don't know what it is about the Christmas season, but it just seems to bring out the best in people. People love the lights, the decorations, maybe the oh holy trees that are out there as well. But, you know, something about it sometimes can just make people feel good and be good. But you know what else brings out, what else comes out of us sometimes during the holiday season as well, if we're honest with ourselves? Not only the good, but sometimes it brings out the worst in us as well. And maybe it's the crowded lines at supermarkets or in uh, the strip malls or in the shopping centers that we go to. Or, or maybe it's all the traffic to and from work and people going to family and friends' houses. And, and there's something about maybe the rush and the hustle and the bustle of it all that just makes us in a bad mood. And sometimes we are more like a Grinch during Christmas, Christmas season. We're a little more irritable. We're a little bit more angry. We're a little bit more impatient. And guys, if I'm honest with you, I think that's kind of where I've been recently, especially with my neighbors across the street from me. All right, just to kind of give you a little bit of a backstory, me and my wife, Darren, we moved into our house that we're living in for the past two years. And this has been an ongoing issue that we've had with these neighbors across the street. What they've been doing is for some reason, they've been deciding to park their cars right in front of our house. Okay, and these, again, these aren't the neighbors next door to us, but these are the neighbors across the street from us. So every day when they park, they have to cross the street. Every day when they leave, they have to cross the street. For whatever reason, they're parking right in front of our house, even though they have parking spots right in front of their house. Even though they have parking spots right next to their house, even though they have parking spots in their driveway and in their garage, I know because I've seen their garage open and there's space in there for, people, for them to park, but for whatever reason, they park right in front of our house. And, and I know, I understand, there were people that came up to me after the service yesterday, they're like, Pastor James, you know that's illegal for them to do. And I'm like, I know, I get it. They, they, they're in their rights. There's nothing wrong with it technically. But for whatever reason, for me, it just bothers me so much. It irritates me. Part of me is just complaining about them and thinking that it's just so... It's so inconsiderate of them, and I'm just thinking, why can't they just park in front of their own house? And so I've been wrestling and thinking about how do I handle this? What should I do? Should I retaliate? Should I maybe write a nice, strong letter and put it on their car? Maybe should I go over to their house, knock on their door, and confront them? Or maybe should I just do nothing at all? Well, let me tell you what I've been doing for the past two years. I may or may not have turned the sprinklers on a couple times when their cars were right in front of our house. I may or may not have looked out the window on street sweeping day and said, oh, their cars are still there. I hope they get a ticket. I may or may not have actually done nothing. <laughs> at all except complain over and over to my wife and anyone else who will listen. But is that what I should do? What should I do? You know, and as I was given the task 
of preparing today's message, I think I found my answer. And I want to share it with you today because I think, no, I, I know that every single one of us, whether we're here in the worship center, out in the lobby, or in the faith center, or watching online, we all have those neighbors that are just difficult to love. And God has called us to love them. And so before we talk about how we wish will we respond to the most difficult of neighbors? Let me open up our time in a word of prayer. Let's pray. God, I come before you thankful for the opportunity to preach and teach your word, but God, I pray that you would be our teacher today. That God, what would come out of my mouth would not be memorable, but God, what would come out of my mouth would be your words and would be impactful. That God, we wouldn't just hear your word and even understand your word and even applaud your word and nod our head to your word, but that God, we would be doers of your word. God, sometimes we come wanting a message to make us feel good, but God, you are sometimes more concerned about making us good. And so God, if that is the case today with your message, would you convict us? Would you challenge us? Would you hit us at our core so that we can be more like our Father in heaven? and be able to love our neighbors, even the most difficult ones. God, we love you. We thank you. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in this series, Who's My Neighbor? And we've been trying to discover who's my neighbor because God has called us to love our neighbors. And so as we've been exploring the scriptures, we've discovered that widows and orphans, that they are our neighbors. That those that are maybe EGRs, people that need a little extra grace required, that they are our neighbors. We've learned that those that are hurting and in need of help, they're our neighbors as well. We've learned that the next generation, our youth, whether we are parents or not, that they are our neighbors and that they are under attack. And so we must protect them and love them and care for them. We've learned that those near in proximity to us, our physical neighbors, those around us, our, our coworkers, people that are just around, they are neighbors, but also those that are far from us physically and even spiritually, that they are our neighbors as well. And then we also have learned that our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have the same faith as us, they are our neighbors and we are called to love them. But today, I want us to see another neighbor that God has called us to love. And this is the most difficult of neighbors. And so let's take a look at who this neighbor is from Jesus' own mouth as we come to the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 43 and go through 48. And so if you have your Bibles, would you take a moment and turn there with me? If you guys have your apps, you can take that out as well. If you guys don't have any of those, we'll have the verses for you to follow on the screen. But just to kind of set the stage for you guys, here is Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, what is considered the most powerful and maybe the greatest message ever given, because of course it's given by the greatest who ever lived, Jesus. But here, Jesus is teaching about how to live kingdom-minded while here on earth. And he's given instructions to those that want to be his disciples on how to live, and especially here in relationship to other people. And so he's starting to use the Ten Commandments, but he's trying to teach them that it's not just obeying the law to the T, but it's going even further than that. He's addressing not just behavior, but heart and attitude. For instance, he talks about murder. How murder is not just the physical act of killing somebody, but that if you have hate towards your brother, towards your sister, toward anyone else, that's considered murder as well. 
He talks about adultery, and adultery is not just between a man and a woman and being unloyal to your spouse and having that physical action occur. But no, he says, if you have lust towards somebody else that is not yours, that is not your spouse, that too is adultery. He talks about lying and he talks about how we should be people of our word. He talks about if people treat you poorly, how you should retaliate and respond, not with what they are giving you, but with grace, with kindness, with love. And it's no wonder that he takes that moment and then begins to talk about the most difficult of neighbors. Because take a look in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. We'll start there. He says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what Jesus is doing right here is he's quoting Old Testament scripture from the book of Leviticus, where we have learned that we are to love our neighbors, but somehow, some way, things have gotten lost in translation, and there's misinformation about this idea. People are thinking wrongly about this idea. It's kind of like how quotes over time and through passing on to other people and through you know, many translations just get kind of misused and misconfused, all of that stuff. It's like this quote right here. I don't know if you guys know this quote. I'm sure many of you guys do, but this quote says, Blood is thicker than water. Have you guys heard of that before? It's this idea that our family bonds, our brothers, our sisters, our mom and dads, our physical blood relatives, that those bonds are so thick there is no other greater relationships. But if you look at the original, the original quote, it's a little bit more extended. And scholars suggest, man, it has a whole different meaning because this is what it says. It says, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And what it's basically saying is saying that a chosen blood covenant between friends, a chosen covenant between partners, or agreements made in blood, that they are actually stronger than what? Our family relationships. Do you guys see how that's a completely different meaning than what, the, what we know now? And Jesus is trying to do the same right here on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you've heard one thing, and you've applied a way of thinking about that one thing, but I want you guys to understand that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what it's saying, because for us, let's take a look at the verse that he's referring to, Leviticus 19.18. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And maybe in context, you look through Leviticus 19 in this whole chapter, and you see that God is talking to his people about, hey, love your neighbors, those are, that are just like you, fellow countrymen, those that are living within your uh, area, like you should love them. But do you notice something too, though? It never once alludes to this idea that you should also hate your enemy. So Jesus clears that up by continuing on in Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44. We'll read it again for 43, but take a look at what he says in verse 44. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We see right here, Jesus answering the question that maybe some of us might have today, and that is, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who am I called to love? Well, the answer is this. My enemies are my neighbors. My enemies 
are my neighbors. And guys, these are the most difficult neighbors to love, right? Because all of the other neighbors that we have found out, that we have discovered, orphans, widows, help, those that are in need of help, the youth, all of those stuff, that, that kind of makes sense. Our hearts are tugging for them and we realize they need our help. And maybe for the other people, like fellow believers, that makes sense, right? Or, or those that are far from Jesus, that makes sense. They need God. We need to be able to love each other and do all of those things. But here, our enemies, our enemies, the people that we don't like, the people that don't like us, the people that don't deserve our love, the people that we don't feel like loving, Jesus is saying, those are your neighbors as well. And you need to love them. Well, maybe some of you guys, though, as you hear that, you, you think, I know this, Pastor James. This has been preached many times. And maybe you're struggling with another question today. And maybe your question, maybe your question is, well, who is my enemy? Like, what, what would you really consider an enemy? Well, if we look at the original language, as I kind of went through and tried to study this and kind of get a better sense of this as well, it says that the original word, it, it implies this idea of hatred, this idea of someone being hostile, someone that is an antagonist towards you. Basically, you could say someone that is a hater, someone that is on the opposing side of you, someone that just has the worst intentions out for you. Simply put, I came with this working definition. It's not perfect by any means, but it's something that maybe we could all relate to. It's anyone. It's anyone who wishes or works against you. They can be considered our enemies. And the beauty of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not only does he state the obvious, but he gives us more nuances and he addresses our hearts and our attitudes. And so as we look through the rest of these scriptures and context, we will get a better sense of who these enemies can be and how Jesus is not just talking maybe about just the obvious enemies, but even maybe the subtle ones and the not so obvious ones. So let's read it together. We're going to start at verse 43 again. And follow along, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Would you underline or make mental note of those who persecute you? Because that's one enemy right there. But in 45, he goes on to say, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Would you circle, underline, or just make mental note of that picture as well? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers... Would you circle, underline, or make mental note of that phrase as well? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. One of the first types of enemies that Jesus brings to light is the obvious ones, right? Like the ones that persecute us. And when we think about the word persecute, I want you guys to understand in the original word, in its meaning, it means to someone that pursues you and someone that pursues you to harm you, to hurt you, to purposely and intentionally seek your worst, someone that is out to get you. And you know, in Jesus' time, when he was speaking to the audience, those believers, those people, they knew persecution. Matthew, when he wrote this, his audience knew persecution. Why? Because during that time, they faced persecution 
physically and intensely. Some were not just, they weren't just facing persecution of words or feelings or emotions or popular opinion. No, they were facing persecution of action, of torture. Believers were being beaten, were being imprisoned, and were being killed for their faith. And while we here in the U.S. in 2022, we don't necessarily face that kind of persecution, there are many brothers and sisters all over the globe that are. And God has called us to pray for those enemies. But here's the thing. Here in America, we still do face persecution. It's just a little bit different. Maybe it's us getting laughed at or mocked or ridiculed or being made fun of or slandered against, or being discriminated because of the things that we believe and we stand for, because of our faith and our devotion and our allegiance to Jesus Christ, to the word of God. Because of those things, maybe you have faced people who have treated you wrongly because of what you believed. And Jesus says, you know what? That's normal. That's normal for believers. And so this is the thing that I want to take a moment to maybe for us just to really be honest about for, with ourselves. If some of us are sitting here thinking, but, but James, I've really never really faced persecution like that. I don't really deal with that kind of persecution. Then maybe we need to take an honest assessment. An honest assessment of our faith. And just how vocal we are in our actions, in our deeds, in our words. Because Jesus said we will be persecuted. His own words in John chapter 15, verse 19 through 20, put it like this. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will. They will, they will persecute you also. If you obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. But Jesus is saying here, I'm your master. Jesus was perfect, and yet he was still persecuted. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if I'm your master, and I'm perfect, and I'm persecuted, you should be ready for this. You should be expecting this. You should know you will have enemies who will persecute you. These, of course, are obvious enemies. But there's also other obvious enemies as well, right? Those that are like criminals who may try to rob you or steal from you or harm you or hurt you, like terrorists or abusers. These are obvious. But there are also other obvious enemies, people that just don't like us, people that are trying to hold us back or hold us down. And these could be anybody and everybody, whether it be teachers or coworkers, friends, bosses, family, teammates, exes, whatever it might be, we may be facing enemies of persecution or of hate or slander of harsh words from these people. And Jesus is telling us in these obvious cases, yes, you must love them. But again, on the Sermon on the Mount, we realize Jesus is not just addressing the obvious, but the subtleties of our heart. And he tells us that there are some not so obvious enemies that we should be aware of and that we are called to love as well. And maybe some of these enemies aren't 
necessarily thought of as enemies because there's no personal bias or there doesn't seem to be any intentionality of them trying to hurt us or harm us, but they are against us. An example of that is this, and I know by saying this, I am going to make some enemies right now. I am a New York Yankees fan, all right? Please don't tune me out because I said that, okay? Please hear not me but God and what he has to say. But as a New York Yankees fan, I have discovered that there is one enemy that I think all Yankees fans could agree is their obvious enemy. And if you're not a baseball fan, let me tell you who that enemy is. It is a dreaded, it is a nasty, it's the horrible Boston Red Sox. Okay, that they have had a long-standing rivalry for years upon years. They dislike each other. They don't want to deal with each other. They don't want to help each other in any way. But in reality, do you know who else are the New York Yankees' biggest enemies? Or maybe not the biggest, but not so obvious enemies? Someone said it last night, but it's everyone. <laughs> it's everyone else in the major leagues. Why? Because Everyone else is going against the Yankees and keeping them from their goal and their objective. And in the same way, we have similar enemies. People that are just different from us. People that maybe have different thoughts and values and beliefs than us. Maybe even people who have different political party affiliations than us as well. And we may not be intentionally looking at to harm them, or they intentionally looking to harm us or hate us, but they are not on our side. They are against our faith and the things that we believe. And Jesus put it this way, Matthew 12, 30, he said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying, hey, you can say you live a good life. You can say that, you know what? I don't really have a big deal with Jesus, but if you are not with me, then you are against me. Then you are my enemy. And these types of enemies, we must love as well. But maybe in our lives, we just kind of ignore them. Maybe we just have this underlying disdain and bitterness toward them, but we don't necessarily go out of our ways to hurt them or harm them, or they don't seem to be going out of their ways to do the same to us. But Jesus has called us to love them as well. You know what some other not so obvious enemies could be? It could be people that are different than us, but they are people that we just love and we have relationship with. We know them, they know us. And maybe it's those relationships that keep us from saying they're truly our enemies, but we keep bumping heads with them. And we think of them in a negative light or we just have more of a mild dislike for them. It could be tough in-laws. It could be a cheating spouse. It could be an overbearing parent. It could be an absent parent. It could be a difficult sibling, a hard coworker, an unfair boss. It could be a rebellious child. It could be even the trolls online who make comments about our pictures or the comments that we make, and all of a sudden we're going back and forth with, but we may not think of them as enemies. But they are because they don't have, they're not on the same side as us. Now, as we've been unpacking this a little bit more, do you sense and do you get a, do you maybe feel God poking you a little bit and saying, maybe there are some enemies that you need to love? Another one is the impersonal enemy. Because as we read, and I had you guys know earlier in Matthew 5, 46 through 47, 
there comes another picture. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than them? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Basically, Jesus is saying, hey, even people that don't know me, don't believe in me, have not experienced my grace and my love, they get this. They know this. Even your enemies, they know how to love because they can love those that love them. And he's saying, I don't want you to be like them. You're not supposed to be like them. I've caught you at a higher standard. The worst of the worst, whether it be gang members, terrorists, in this case, tax collectors. He's saying, we got to be different than them. Because they can love and they can greet people that love them and greet them that they know and that they like. We are called to a higher standard. Just because we don't know them or they don't know us or we don't care about them or don't care about us doesn't give an excuse not to love them. And the enemy that I think about in this for me personally are my neighbors across the street. <laughs> because I'll be honest with you, I've never greeted them once. I've never said hello to them. In my mind, I've thought, these guys are horrible people. Like I've already made up the decision that they are inconsiderate and they're rude. But have I ever talked to them? No. And then I thought about it as well. I was like, because I don't have a personal relationship with them, look how upset, look how mad I get about them parking in front of our house. And yet I thought, man, what if it was one of you guys? What if it was someone here from church and you guys were parking there and I saw you? You know what my response probably would be? Well, I hope it would be. It would probably be like, hey, hey, it's good to see you. Man, I'm so glad that you're my neighbor. Yeah, park there anytime you want, whenever you need. Right? And if we're honest, we would do the same, right? If it was our brother or our sister, if it was our friend that was parking there, we wouldn't have any issue with it. But all of a sudden, because we don't know them, all of a sudden, because we have no relationship with them, all of a sudden, it's, man, they're rude. Man, they're horrible. Man, what's wrong with them? Why do they got it out, got it out for me? Why do they have to be like that? See, Jesus is saying, hey, even those people, we've been called to love. And then even if we look through that scripture, that idea of those people that you say hi to, you greet, the people that just kind of come and go momentarily in your life, Jesus is saying, hey, you need to love them as well. And think about that. There will be momentary enemies that come by and passing for all of us. Maybe it's while we're on the road and we're driving and all of a sudden someone cuts us off, right? And our first reaction isn't what? Man, Jesus loves you. It's, let me hit this horn and tell you how badly you interrupted my way. And when they do that, they wave at you. But maybe not with all their fingers, maybe just one, right? <laughs> And so you want to wave right back at them, not, hey, come out to church. Hey, glad you were able to make it into my lane safely. It's probably something else that I can't repeat. Or, or maybe it's while you're at the market and you're, rush, you're rushing and you're hustling to try to get home. And so you look for, of course, the quickest line and you only have like maybe four items or something like that. So you see, oh, 10 items or less is open. So you rush over there and all of a sudden someone jumps right in front of you. And you're looking at their basket, and you're like, one, two, <laughs> 10, 15. They got 20 items in there. How dare they? They're not obeying the laws or the rules. They're so rude. They're so mean. And we start already making up our decisions about who they are and their character. They slightly, in that moment, become our enemy. Or maybe for some of you guys, as you're waiting for Christmas presents, you get a notification. It might not arrive on time. 
So you call customer service, and they're like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And you're like, I need to talk to a manager. What is wrong with you? And you just start to lay into them. They're not trying to be your enemies, but all of a sudden they become your enemies because now they are getting in the way of what you want. God said, love them too. See, Jesus, he, he raises the bar for us here on the Sermon on the Mount. He calls us to love people. He calls us to love our neighbors. He calls us to love even the most difficult of neighbors and the difficult of people. And that is our enemies, the obvious and the not so obvious. So what does loving our enemies look like? Well, let's take a look at Luke's account of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Because I think he gives us a little bit more detail that we can pull from. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Pay attention to the next few things he says, because he gives us practical ways of what that will look like. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. You know, those last two where he talks about bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you, we, we could put it in this type of phrase. Speak good over your enemies. Speak good over your enemies. When they are talking bad about you, when they are making your life a living, horrible existence that you don't even want to deal with, when they seem to be slandering you and gossiping over you, we're told to what? Bless them. Not to respond back with slander and respond back with angry words and gossip. Not criticism or insults, but with blessing, with words of truth and love, with encouragement and life-giving words. Blessings, not cursings. And the best way that we could speak good over our enemies is, of course, as he put it, pray for them. Here's the truth. Guys, it's hard to keep someone on our hit list when they're on our prayer list. And it's not just praying for them to be taken care of. God, deal with them. You said vengeance is yours, so venge. Like, it's not just like, God, take care of them, and, you know, may they feel your wrath. But it's praying for God's good for them and pursuing God's best for them. He also tells us to do good, to do good towards your enemy. Practically speaking, I think Paul lays out a really, really clear picture of what that can look like. In Romans 12, verse 17 through 20, says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, hear this out, church, if possible, so far as it depends on you, so far as it depends on you, here Paul is telling us, hey, you control what you can control. Do as much as you can from your side on your part. You can't control them. You can't control how they'll act. You can't control how they'll feel. You can't control them. But as far as it depends on you, it's our ownership. Not, no longer just playing victim anymore. But saying, hey, as far as it depends on you, what does he tell us to do? Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, 
give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We see here a clear picture of what it will look like to do good toward our enemy. Doing good means serving them. Doing good means helping them. Doing good might even look like forgiving them. Even though they're not doing any of those things to us. Because why? He says, as long as it depends on, as much as you can do, right? Your part is to do this, regardless of what they do. And guys, I want you to understand, we're not just talking about being nice for the sake of appeasing them, but truly for their good, for the interest of them, for opportunities to possibly help save them and serve them, to point them to the one that truly is good, and that's God. And that might mean forgiving them. That leads us to the next part. It's truly, what does it look like to truly love our neighbor? Is give your enemies over to God for good. Give your enemies over to God for good. He tells us, don't retaliate with revenge, but instead respond. Respond with grace. Respond with good. Respond with God. Again, God is not calling us just to ignore our enemies or be a doormat to our enemies, to do nothing with our enemies. No, if anything, he's actually telling us to respond, to be proactive, to make choices, to take action. And this action is counter to culture. And what it could look like, it could look like forgiving your enemy. It could look like helping your enemy. It could look like blessing your enemy and talking well of them because it's truth. Even though you feel like, man, I could say some other things to slander them and make them look bad here in this moment. It could even mean inviting them out to church. I mean, think about that for a second. A lot of times... We heard from Pastor Greg earlier about us, you know, taking the opportunity to love our neighbors, invite them out to church. And we might be thinking of the neighbors we like, right? The neighbors that we get along with, friends, coworkers. But maybe there's that coworker that just is your enemy. Maybe there's that family member that you just are like, oh, to love them would be to invite them to church. And you're like thinking, oh, but if I invite them, that means I have to sit with them. <laughs> that means that I have to stay with them. God has called us love our enemies. This made me think about my neighbors across the street. What would doing good, speaking good, and giving them over to God look like for me practically? And I thought about speaking good would mean that, one, I would begin to pray for my enemies. I would begin to pray for them. Not, God, please give them a better parking spot. Maybe be convicted of their sin against me and start parking across the street. No, not that, but praying that God, you know what? If that's what they need, maybe they, there's a reason for it that I just don't understand. And if I could bless them and be helpful in that, that's what I could begin to do. And I could even pray for myself because I could say, there might be some issue that I have. Because why am I getting so bent out of shape about this? Or I could even stop. Stop my complaining to my wife and to my friends because I've done that. I've done that when people have come over and they ask me whose car is that. I'm like, oh, it's my neighbor's. And I just go in a rant. Right? And then I get them to start thinking, yeah, that's rude. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, come on, right? But that's not speaking good over them. Or I could even go and speak to them directly and tell them how I feel, but with kindness, with gentleness, with patience. That's what speaking good could look like to them. Or doing good to them, I, can, I could actually say hello <laughs> to them. 
I could say, wow, it's been a couple years. I haven't even got a chance to know you. I could go over and introduce them. Instead of saying, well, they didn't say hi to me. I ain't saying hi to them. I could actually go and initiate first. I could even invite them out to church. Guys, I said this yesterday, and they're like, oh, we hope to see your neighbors here at church. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to actually have to do this now, huh? <laughs> I could actually maybe go out and invite them to church. And then, of course, I could give them over to God and pursue God's good for them. To stop thinking about revenge, to stop maybe turning on the sprinklers and just let it go and give it to God. To forgive them, but also to ask for forgiveness from God for feeling and letting this ugliness starting to consume me. And yet you're thinking here, maybe some of you guys, but why would I do this? Honestly, James, but why would I do this? I get it. I know it's a comm- I know all of this stuff, but why? Let, let me tell you why, why we should love our enemies. First of all, it's a command. <laughs> it's not a suggestion. It's not Jesus saying, hey, you know, if you feel like it, when you get a chance, when you come around to it, can, can you kind of love them, please? No, he's saying love them. No ifs, ands, or buts. And it's not just me that's saying this either. If you got a problem with this command, take it up with Jesus. Take it up with God. But I think he gives us this command, one, two. Another reason is because, because God loved us first. Because God loved us first. We were considered his enemies before we ever came and gave our faith and our devotion and our love to him. We were sinful doing our own thing, rebellious. And even before we acknowledged him, we know that Jesus died for us. Romans 5.10 puts it this way, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. We were enemies of God. And before we ever did anything to deserve it, to earn it, and we really can't, he chose to love his enemies, sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins so that we could experience good, so that we could be saved. But I think ultimately one of the best reasons for you and I to truly love our enemies is because it's for their good, it's for your good, and it's for God's glory. It's for their good. Again, like we said, by loving them, we have an opportunity and a chance to show them God, right? Because if we just keep hating them, going back and forth with them, they're never going to listen to us. They're never going to give us an open ear and an invita- accept an invitation to learn about Jesus. But when we love them and do good to them, and they might wonder why, what is going on, we have a chance for their own good to discover the good that God has shown us. But secondly, it's for our own good. It's for your good. Romans 12, 21 put it this way. After talking about how to love our enemies in this really practical way, it says this. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't fight fire with fire. When people fight fire with fire, what happens? Everybody starts to get burned. They get burned, but you also get burned as well. And there are many times if we allow the ugliness and the bitterness of hatred to fester in our hearts, it begins to grow. Just like I said about my neighbors, it it begins to come out. 
And we try to get other people involved as well. And all of a sudden, rather than responding in love and in grace, all we want to do is respond the way that they have been treating us and acting toward us and speaking to us. And then all of a sudden, that same evil that we hate them for is starting to come out of us as well. So it's for our own good. But ultimately, it's for God's glory. Take a look at the original verses that we're looking at today. Matthew 5, 43, it gives us the answers as we go through 40 to 45. It says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and the sins rain on the just and on the unjust. We love our enemies so that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. We have an opportunity to reflect and represent our Father in heaven as his children. I mean, think about that for a second. You know, this idea made me think about my beautiful, sweet niece, Charlie. She's about 22 months old, and I've had a front row of watching her grow up. And man, it's been really amazing just to see her personality come out and shine, to see her talking and babbling and doing all sorts of funny, and funny things. And you know what I've noticed as I've been watching her life? I've noticed more and more of her parents in her. And I look at her because I know her parents. They're really good friends of mine. I look at them and I say, man, that's your mom. Man, Charlie, when you do that, that's just like your dad. I see your parents inside of you. Well, when people see us, who do they see? I tell you what, though. When we're loving our enemies like God loved us, people will see our Father in heaven in us. So we do it for God's glory, for him to be known and to be seen. That's why we love our enemies. But how do we do it? How do we love our enemies? When we're honest with ourselves, our enemies stir up a lot of emotions. They irritate us. Man, they've hurt us. They've wronged us. They've angered us. They've saddened us. They truly don't deserve our love. Man, we can never, ever feel like loving them. So how? How, James? How can I truly love my enemies? And I think the answer can be found in what Jesus is commanding us to do. Is to love our enemies. You're like, but James, that's the hardest part, and I get it. But I think there's a funny thing about the word love in our English language. We use this powerful and this deep word for so many different things and in so many different ways. For instance, I could say, man, I love food. I love food so much. I love running. I love the Yankees. I love this TV show. I love this smell. And that same word we could use to say, man, I love my family. I love my wife. I love my church. I love God. There should be variations to that, right? That same word shouldn't be able to reflect all the different levels of love. And you know, in the original language of the New Testament, which was written in Greek, the Greek had many different words for this idea of love. And so I think if we were to really understand that and see that, we would see that, man, what God is calling us to do when he says love our neighbors might not be what you think it is. See, a, a few of the words that the Greeks often use for love is like eros. 
Eros is this passionate, sensual love that is typically experienced between lovers, those that are in romantic relationship with one another. And then there's this other kind of love, phileo kind of love, where it's brotherly love, a love that you experience with your family, one of loyalty and companionship. And then there's agape, agape love. Agape is what is most often related to the idea of love when it concerns God and his commands in the New Testament. And that's because agape love means a selfless love, a sacrificial love, an unconditional love that seeks the benefit of others through actions and through attitudes. It is an act of will. It's a deliberate and intentional choice of love of how you will act and the attitude that you will carry towards someone else. It's not this uncontrollable feeling or natural chemistry that usually we typically think of when it concerns love. Jesus is commanding us to agape love our enemies, not feel the warm fuzzies for them or feel good about what we're doing. You know, because emotions, they, they, are, they are things that we typically can't control easily. It's not like an on and off switch, Right? And that's good because that's not what God is commanding us to do. No, he's commanding us to have agape love toward our enemies. A choice of love, a choice of our attitude, a choice of our action toward our enemies. But let's be honest. This kind of love isn't natural to us. This quote by Alfred Plummer, I think, puts it in a good way. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. This kind of love, agape love, it's not something that we can naturally produce and make on our own. So we have to go to the source of it. And what is the source of agape love? Take a look at 1 John 4, 7 through 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not have love does not know God because God is love. God is agape. So what do we need to do? We need to seek Christ and the cross. We cannot do this on our own. No amount of willpower, no amount of strength, no amount of our determination can do this for us, to love our neighbors. And you know, the Sermon on the Mount, I think what's so beautiful about the Sermon on the Mount is although it's one of the greatest messages ever, you know what, it doesn't actually say once anything about the cross. But here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount points to the cross and our need for Christ. Especially when Jesus ends the statement of loving our enemies with this verse. Matthew 5, 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I feel like he just dropped the mic right there. You must be perfect. This idea of perfect is this completeness, this maturity, this wholeness. And that's why I think it's so appropriate that this is the last message that we conclude this series with because of all of our neighbors, God's saying, have this mature, complete, whole love, complete love of loving everyone, including your enemies, like your Father in heaven. And yet all of us are sitting here thinking, we're not perfect. We can't be perfect. We are, we are so far from perfect. And that's why we need Christ and the work of the cross 
to truly love all of our neighbors completely, maturely, and perfectly. You know, a picture that helps me always kind of drives me back to be reminded of God's love for me and helps me to begin to love others is this picture here. It's this picture of a man holding nail and a hammer, kind of alluding to the idea that he was Jesus' enemy. He's the reason why Jesus was nailed to the cross, and then yet here is Christ holding him, embracing him, and keeping him up. See, when we're filled with Christ and remember his sacrifice for us who was once his enemies, then we can begin to do this next. We can then see our enemies like Christ sees enemies. You could begin to see your enemies like Christ sees enemies. Because, I mean, think about it. When Jesus was on the cross and he was being mocked and ridiculed by all the people around, including the Roman soldiers and those that nailed him to the cross, what did he do? What did he say? Well, he did good towards them, right? How? By, of course, dying for their sins. But he even spoke good over them and gave them over to the Lord when he said this in Luke 23, 34. He said, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus wasn't on the cross and looking down at those that were putting him there, that nailed him there and thinking, I'll remember this. I'm taking names. I'm taking numbers. Just you wait. I'll get you back. No, instead he looked down. He told his father in heaven, they don't even understand what they're doing. They don't even get it. Yes, they nail me here, but God, forgive them. Forgive them. See, when we can begin to see our enemies like Christ sees his enemies, then we can begin to serve our enemies. You can begin to serve your enemies like Christ served his enemies. Guys, I know it's hard. It's radical. I know that this is impossible on our own. I don't know what kind of enemies you have, but I do know this. When we do love our enemies, we can help our enemies become our family. Just like this lady, Mary Johnson from Minneapolis did. Take a look up on the screen. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. 
as a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience of one. I know I've shown that video here at the church once before, but I just thought it was so perfect because Mary's enemy became her neighbor and her neighbor became her family. Mary says she's adopted O'Shea as her spiritual son. I mean, think about this. It was for his good that she forgave him. He came to know Christ because of this woman's ability to love her. But this woman also shared for her own good that forgiveness was good and it was therapeutic. But finally, we are only hearing about this story. This story only made the news. Why? Because this is unnatural. This is unlike what most people would do. If we just love people that loved us and discarded our enemies and treated them the way that we think that they should be treated, then that would make no headlines. But when we do, the world will take notice. And that's for God's glory. I hope and I pray, because God did it for us, that you will take the love that you received when you were once God's enemy and you will begin to love your enemy and make them family as well. Let's represent and let's reflect our Father in heaven for his glory. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for loving us even when we don't deserve it, even when we've never earned it, even when we were your enemies. God, today I pray that this word wouldn't be just something that we heard that we even understand and we even just agree with. But God, I pray that this would be a word that we would respond to, that your Holy Spirit would, would empower us to live and that God, you would fill us with this agape love so that God, we can truly love the most difficult of neighbors, our enemies. Help us to love like you loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.